so it's, it's on two papers that I submitted to TRB this summer for my summer's worth of work. Um, initially, when Dr. Rollette had asked me to do a presentation, I thought, oh, great. I can put together a presentation on um, the lessons I've learned in the past six months as I've gone from grad school to academia. And okay, well, here are all the things that I didn't realize were important making that transition. Here are all the things that matter and then ways to be helpful. And I spent about two and a half hours over this week trying to pull stuff together for that and realized there was so much information to compile that it wasn't going to happen for this Friday. So hopefully some other time, um, stop by and talk to me if you're interested or maybe some other seminar. Okay. So today I'm going to talk about the work that I already had done and could easily put together in a presentation. Um, it's the title here, New Perspectives on Delay and Level Service at Intersections and Interchanges, is the title of one of the papers. But the content comes from actually two papers. The first, uh, Validating Analysis Methods for Alternative Intersections Using Field Data. Um, and then this New Perspectives thing kind of grew naturally out of that as a way to leverage the time and effort that went into the first one. Um, this is a situation where I went to my committee and told them my dissertation topic and did my uh, proposal and explained, here's what I'm going to do for the next you know, six or nine months. And in passing, one of my committee members said, well, you've done all this simulation work and you, you've made lots of advances in our understanding of the operations of alternative intersections and interchanges, but you haven't incorporated any field data. So I think it would be good if you'd validate that we can simulate these designs with field data. You know, why, why didn't you do that? And my initial thought was, well, because that's a different dissertation. Um, but in order to complete your work and leave, it's a good idea to address your committee's comments. So um, I was fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you view it, um, to have some data to work with. So as I approach this topic of validating simulation for these intersection designs, there's a couple different ways you can look at that problem. Um, possibly fortunate for me, the committee member did not define what they meant by validating the simulation. Uh, you can either look at the inputs or the outputs. So for the individual cars within the simulation, you've got their behavior in terms of car following, um, lane changing, gap acceptance, how close behind another vehicle do they follow at any given speed, when did they choose to change lanes? How random is it changing lanes? Um, if they're going to make a left turn up ahead, how far in advance of that left turn do they choose to move toward that lane that gives you some disproportionate loading on the lanes? Um, the gap acceptance, how large of a gap if you're making a U-turn movement, which is critical for these designs, um, or just a, a regular left turn. If you're waiting for a gap in that, those cars, how large does that need to be before you pull out? Um, those are the, the inputs that go into the simulation. But then the output that you're looking at are the queue lengths. So is this intersection providing um, auxiliary lanes that are long enough for our turning queues? And ultimately, the travel time is the measure that you're looking at overall. The average travel time, the average delay is the service measure out of that. Um, gets a little complicated with these designs, and I'm going to get into that some more today. So this data set that I had um, came from a summer internship that I did with 
federal highway. I was up in Washington, D.C. for the summer, um, commuting from Blacksburg a couple of hours of the week. Um, and they were collecting data to update the highway capacity manual. So the next version, the next iteration, will include a number of different alternative designs, and subsequently those will then get into all the standard software applications. So these are designs that are very rare right now, but about to become much more common. Your um, standard consulting firm will have access to all of these now, and they'll be on the table, as you say. Um, Federal Highway collected data from four different types of designs. All told, uh, like the diverging diamond interchange at four different locations, we set up 12 different cameras for each peak hour. So every approach, every direction got concurrent video of everything going on, ended up with 256 hours worth of video data to document those four locations. Um, there was an awful lot of data at my fingertips. So I had six months to do data reduction by myself and come up with some check that my simulation is valid compared to the observations in the field. Um, I narrowed it down to looking at one peak hour example for a restricted crossing U-turn, a displacement turn, and a diverging diamond interchange, just to get some variety in there. Um, and it's not so much a validation of all alternative simulation, but a case study, because that's what you can do with that frame of time. Um, here's an example of how the videos would be, uh, would be set up. So we've got the overall interchange location here. Here's the center of it. You can see the cameras mounted on a pole. Um, in this case, they were trying to be relatively efficient since they were flying us all around the country to these different locations to, to get this data. We couldn't have uh, an ITF van or something like that with us. So we had a duffel bag full of GoPro cameras with extra batteries and extra um, memory sticks. And then when we landed at each location, we'd go to the local Home Depot and we'd buy these painter's poles, like 24-foot tall poles. And we had a mount to attach our cameras. So we had two looking at an angle and one looking at the center that we'd attach this pole and we duct tape it to a street light or a utility pole in the area to get the angle that we needed for our videos. Um, and in this way, we could collect that video data all over the country, hopping on a plane one week, and then drive into the next location, hopping on a plane, going back someplace else the next week. Um, from those, that video data, we can then extrapolate what the signal timings are what the uh, demand flow rates are, and we can use the aerial images to generate the geometry for these different designs and simulations. This is an example of a diverging diamond, uh, some, sometimes called a double crossover diamond, depending on who you ask and which month it is. Um, in this case, you've got a major arterial on the east-west. You've got a highway on the north-south. So We've got a grade separation here. I'm not showing the highway cars, but there'd be significantly more running up and down the highway than on the arterial. The main arterial is the east-west passage here. And as we approach the interchange, we're crossing over our traffic onto the opposing side of the road um, at this point. So we let the right turners go free. We cross the left turners and the through traffic over. 
we then let the left turners go three on the other side, and we cross the through traffic back to the regular side of the road when we get across the other side. The main advantage of this design is it lets your left turns go free, and it doesn't implement that signal. It doesn't build up queues across the bridge. Um, this is a fairly large bridge. This was a new construction that Utah put in place. Um, a lot of places that this has been utilized in the past has been at existing locations where uh, demand volumes are getting too high and the queues of left turns across the bridge are requiring another lane beyond what the bridge can sustain. So by converting to this design at an existing location, you can get more throughput without uh, replacing your bridge if the bridge structure itself has something like left turns. This is a partial displaced left turn. This is in Loveland, Colorado. Um, in this case, it's the minor road that they've done modifications to. And upstream of the signal on both ends, they take the left turn vehicles from the main intersection and they cross them over the opposing side of the through traffic coming the opposite direction. The advantage of this is that your throughs can go concurrently in both directions on itself, and your left turns can go with them. So you end up with um, only one phase necessary for the north-south direction instead of the two phases, lefts and then throughs. Um, this works well when your volume of left-turning traffic per lane is approximately equal to your volume of through traffic. So the amount of time from the signal that they're demanding is about equal, and then you can overlap those times. Um, in this case, the, the main arterial on the east-west the left-turning traffic was much lower than the through traffic on that arterial, so it wouldn't have made sense to offset those, to displace those lefts. Final example is the restricted crossing U-turn I looked at. Um, this is a case where you're prohibiting through and left turn movements from the side street. You're forcing all that side street traffic to take a right and then use a U-turn bay that's upstream of the signal to come back around and complete their movement. So we're allowing on the main arterial here lefts, throughs, and rights. And then from the minor arterial, everyone has to take a right. And then if you had intended to go through or left, use the U-turn bay up there to come back around. This is an excellent solution when you have a major arterial that's a critical roadway you have to maintain your throughput on for your morning commute. But you want to provide access to those minor roads on the side. Um, you want people to be able to get to that shopping center without necessarily a large concern for the travel time of vehicles coming from those side streets. So this is what the video data looks like. Eight terabytes, about I don't know, 10 days worth of video data. Um, at this location, we would have had eight cameras getting all the different angles. Um, you can see the lights here. And you can see the vehicles coming through. In order to line up all the videos in terms of chronological time, we would watch the cars coming through, and we'd stop it when the car was seen in two different videos at once. And then we'd figure out the offset between the start time of the two different videos. Um, it was kind of done with a shotgun approach, where there wasn't a methodology in place to determine the Time, the actual time that each video started at. So we had to assume a time for one video and calculate everything else relative to that 
to line up all the video feeds. Um, if we'd had more time and had thought through the process, I would have liked to have a large digital clock that we held up in front of the camera when we started each video so we had something to at least tie it back to. So strictly from a perspective of getting the work done, I had lots and lots of these videos and I had very little time to reduce the data and the process I needed to go through was to identify when the cars were coming into the network and when they were leaving the network in each given direction to develop travel time. So I had to track each individual car, the time it entered, and the time it got to the exit. Fortunately, when I zoomed in, the resolution on my screen was better than you're seeing here. Um, if we're looking at this video, a section of the video up here with this light, is this part here. So at higher resolution, you can see the, the vehicles queuing up on this side, and you can see when they enter the network back here, and you can see as the vehicles go out this way, this point is kind of where they leave the network and are beyond the limits of the impact of the intersection. So if you look at the aerial view, that corresponds approximately to this spot. So for each eastbound left, eastbound through, eastbound right, I had to define a location that I could see on the videos that was outside of the limits of the intersection where I could start measuring the entry and exit points um, to do my time calculation. If you look at, here's a divergent diamond intersection example, the purple lines all around the diagram show you where the video locations were that I was recording. So for northbound lefts, I would pick up the vehicle here. I would then track it through the signal, through this signal, and write down the time that it exited there. There's enough back and forth of vehicles exchanging positions that in order to track the vehicle that enters here to here, I ended up having to record the time across this stop bar and the time across that stop bar, and then track it through, I'd call it like a red sedan or a blue pickup or something like that. The resolution wasn't good enough to see license plates or anything like that. Um, gave me a little bit of difficulty, though, because my ultimate goal is to compare the travel time of each approach the northbound left, the northbound right, the southbound left, the eastbound through, compare that travel time on the video against my simulation travel times. So I've got all these start and stop points that aren't a uniform distance, and I want to make them a uniform distance so that I can have uh, an approach that's consistent going into my research. The measure that I'm trying to validate is the uh, control delay. Within the highway capacity manual, this is the ultimate service measure that we're looking at. Um, everything is based on this. If you're in consulting and you need to do intersection improvements because there's a new development, they're going to say you need to 
have a control delay that's less than 40 seconds once you're finished with your improvement, something like that. So everything gets tied back to this control delay measure. Um, it's defined in the higher class manual as the delay brought about by the presence of a traffic control, control device. So whether it's um, a stop sign, a signal, a roundabout, some sort of device that's controlling traffic is causing delay. Um, if you're looking at a simulation perspective of delay, you look at the desired free flow speed of the vehicle at a given time, and you compare that with the actual speeds that are traveling at that time, and then you add up all the incremental, you know, I'm traveling this much slower than I want to for this long, add up that extra time that the vehicle takes passing through the location, and you can gather the control delay for the vehicles. Um, it includes the slowing down as you approach the location, it includes the stop time there, it includes the speeding up as you exit. It's from before you're impacted by the intersection to after you're beyond its limits. Um, unfortunately, it explicitly does not include the additional travel time caused by uh, geometrics. This poses a serious issue when we're now considering alternative intersections where our vehicles have a much longer travel path they're going through to get to the same location. So if you're going to do a comparative analysis between a conventional option at this location, where we've got a signal in the middle and everyone can go left and right whatever way they want, versus this condition, if you're using control delay as your service measure, there's no way to build in this additional travel time coming back around here. Um, you have your northbound left at your conventional going this way, and your northbound left U-turn going this way, and the measure that you'd be controlling them, uh, the measure you'd be comparing them against is how much they were slowed down compared to what they wanted to be traveling. It doesn't build in that extra travel time. Um, so I needed to fix that for my research. Um, I developed a method using a constant radius around the circle that basically says, here's how we capture the control delay. And I'm going to go down the right side, and I'm going to come up with a measure for geometric delay that I can apply consistently to every intersection design, whether it's a roundabout or an interchange or a restricted crossing U-turn. This methodology can apply, be applied equally to give us a measure of junction delay that's equal to the control delay plus the geometric component of that delay where, where you're rerouted. Um, what it comes down to is looking at the path that people traveled and then comparing that against a theoretical node-to-node -node distance. So if you're going from your entry point to the centroid of the intersection and then straight out to your exit point, so you're doing basically the diameter of the circle for your distance. Every vehicle, in terms of their desired path, then has a distance equal to the diameter of the circle. Um, if you have your speed limits on the location or your free flow speed on those approaches, you can then directly calculate a base travel time that's uniform for every design, whether it's an interchange at that location or whether it's an intersection or anything in between. 
if you go from your entry point to the centroid and straight out to your exit point, every vehicle can have the same base travel time to compare things against. Um, a problem in comparative analysis right now is that there's no base condition defined. You have your existing condition, which is your signalized intersection, whatever it is, and you're comparing overall control delay one against the other. But if you have additional travel time, you can't then tie it back. So this method comes up with a way to give that base travel time and then build in the geometric travel time on top of that. Um, the grayed out, it's kind of hard to see on this screen here, but the grayed out portion um, is just the additional steps that were added based on uh, the videos having entry and exit points that didn't match up with where this radius touched in. So if the exit point over here is back here or maybe here is where I'm measuring, um, the grayed out boxes here give you a method for adjusting those appropriately so that you can have the same base. When we look at how the data works out for an example like this restricted crossing U-turn, um, using the actual uh, field data collection, demand volumes, the signal timings from the field, um, how it's operating out there, we see that the geometric delay component, for example, the northbound left and through, there's an extra 18 seconds here and 16 seconds here that's added to their travel time by making that movement. But when you look at just the radius that's added on the right turn, it gets a bonus of 1.2 seconds that it's cut down on the travel time by just channelizing that right, maybe offsetting the lanes a couple from the centroid, and it's just it's traveling just that much less distance to make that northbound right. Um, this then gets applied through to the eastbound left and right and westbound left and right. Um, the, East and West through are kind of a wash. And you see in the end where you've got 16 or 17 extra seconds for making these um, side road lefts and throughs, the overall impact in terms of geometric delay on your intersection is less than a second overall. Because you've got these minor bonuses to much larger flow rates, and you've got these major impacts, major negative impacts to much lower volume um, turn movements. So we're disadvantaging those minor street movements to give an advantage to the major street. And overall, in terms of geometric delay alone, it's nearly a wash. Um, so for my validation study for my committee member, I looked at the observed field data. I looked at um, simulation using VISM, so the simulation using integration. Um, and then for fun, I threw in the how to craft a manual method um, with some adjustments to account for the extra travel time measures in, uh, in these designs. And I was able to show that for the restricted crossing U-turn, all the simulation is generally valid. For the displaced left turn, um, I had some issues with progression on the integration simulation, so the DDI were all valid. Now, one thing that stood out to me is that the DDI had valid results 
using the highly capacity manual method from the 2000 version. Um, it, it was not able to predict how things would go with the accurate intersection. But it's a condition-dependent situation. So when I finished with my validation study, I put this time in and I had this data, and I started thinking about, okay, we've got control delay now. We, we've got junction delay that I'm proposing and the existing control delay. How does this work out to comparative analysis? If we've got uh, an existing intersection that wants to be grade separated to maintain its level of service, and then we've got all these alternative intersections that are potential solutions to extend the life of that location without going to an interchange solution, what are the level of service results that get tied back to? And I noticed that We've got the stop-controlled intersection and the signalized intersection are very similar in terms of how control delay maps back to a grade. This is the, the grades are basically what you go to the client with. You go to your municipality, you go to the town meeting, and you tell them it's a level service D right now. We're going to make improvements. It's going to be level service C when we finish. Well, the amount of control delay at the different types of control result in different grades. So if you have 30 seconds of delay at your location, well, if that's a stop-controlled intersection, that's a D. But if it's a signalized intersection, it's a C. And if it's an interchange, it's a B for the same amount of time that you're delayed. The methodology that was used to determine this, as far as I know, was a group of engineers sitting around in a room saying, you know, when people come up to an interchange, they're, they're kind of expecting it's going to take longer to get through. So we need to modify this interchange to, to be higher amounts of delay compared to an intersection. And when you signalize the intersection itself, if you've got um, an equal probability of people arriving, some people are going to arrive on red, you're going to have this base value of delay that you didn't have at the stop-controlled intersection as people just wait for the light to change. So let's, let's increase that relative to the initial because people are going to expect to wait a little bit longer at the stop, at the signalized intersection than they did at the stop sign, and they're going to be okay with waiting that much longer. Their, their feelings are going to be, um, they're going to feel like this is level service C, even though they're waiting a little longer. Um, there's a little bit of research on this, but it's not expensive. Um, and it's, for the most part, a committee sitting in a room saying, we think the signalized interchange should be 1.5 times the signalized intersection. And they voted on it. And that's how this regime compares to this regime, how they came up with those numbers. When roundabouts came along, they said, OK, a roundabout, that's an unsignalized intersection. So we're going to we're going to give that the same values as, as over here. Because um, whether you've got a stop sign or a roundabout, there's no signal there. People are expecting to wait about the same amount. Um, and since our method is to multiply by 1.5 for an interchange compared to a stop sign, let's just take this roundabout. And when we have an interchange with roundabouts at the, at the ramps, 
we're, we're going to multiply that by 1.5 times what the roundabout was. So now we have this new column for level service pairing control delay against the roundabout interchange. Um, the research that's needed to be done to validate how much delay equals what level service is hard to define and hard to fund in terms of the benefit to the funding agency. So if you're going to the Department of Roads in Nebraska, for instance, and you say, um, this isn't legitimate, I'd like to fund research where I look at how people feel about waiting at an interchange versus waiting at an intersection. What's the level of service B? What's the level of service B? The Department of Roads is going to look at you like you have three eyes or two noses and say, we have a budget and we have lots of problems that are costing us money that we're trying to fix. We can't afford to pay you to look into this. So we're stuck with this situation where a committee sits in a room and makes the vote, and these are the regimes. Um, a small benefit to this is that I can sit in my cube and say, well, I don't think this is right. And I can close my own thing without validating it with research. So I did. Coming up with the control delay transition to junction delay, as we look at these new intersection designs, um, they're not interchanges. They're not grade separated. But they're also not single intersections. There's got multiple signalized points that vehicles are traveling through. It's kind of an at-grade interchange that these new designs fit into. And they don't fit into any of the existing categories. And I don't want to add another column on that you know, long chart of level service and say, alternative intersections, they're kind of halfway between an intersection and an interchange. So we're going to multiply by 1.25 and let's vote on it. it, it it's not a long-term solution, um, especially when the problems we're facing are deciding what geometries to build in the future. If our intersection demand volumes are increasing, we need to make improvements. Right now it's a signal. We might keep it as a larger signal. We might go to an interchange. We might go to an alternative intersection solution. The level of service shouldn't be based on what geometry we're putting in there. It should be based on, um, instead what I'm proposing, the total demand at that location. So if you're at a low volume situation, the total demand is going to determine how people perceive that intersection. If you've got only a few cars going through in your peak hour, then people aren't going to expect to wait. They don't care if there's a roundabout there or a signal or a stop sign. They're not going to expect to wait. If you're at the you know, larger signalized intersection volume threshold where the one-lane roundabout doesn't work anymore, the stop sign doesn't work anymore, you're, you're definitely warranted to have a, a signal there with its two-way terminals and things like that, but you're not yet to the point where you need a grade-separated interchange to solve your traffic. There's an expectation there compared to the initial intersection that you're going to wait longer. There's cars around. You have to wait for the cars in front of you to move. Your delay is going to be higher. And you're not going to get mad at your city traffic engineer for not fixing the problem because your expectation is that you're going to have some delay there. If you get a high enough volume that you're now dealing with an interchange situation where you're taking ramps off to one side and coming back through and you've got multiple signals that you're going through, 
there's an expectation there that you're going to take some time to get through that geometry. Um, I'd like to look at that straight across if we're looking at these different designs and not just at, okay, when we go to this, the interchange, we're allowed to have more delay. But okay, what, what's the delay value at all these different options, whether we make a giant accurate intersection or an interchange where maybe we need fewer lanes, but a larger geometry, or these alternatives in between, let's compare apples to apples in terms of our level of service and say, this one has 30 seconds of delay, and this one has 30 seconds of delay, and this one has 30 seconds of delay, so those are all C. They're not B, C, and D, depending on what we build, they're all the same. I was a little nervous presenting this to my committee because it's something where I just threw it on paper and said, this is what I think. And it's not you know, a survey of drivers as they're going through these intersections and experiencing this delay and how they felt about it. And it's not tied back to anything that I can document. It's just, here's an opinion. And I presented my research, and my committee all patted me on the back and said what a great job I'd done, and that I was finally an academic. I thought, what? <laughs> so apparently sometimes you just need to go with it. Um, and that's what I have for today.